Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and today I'd like to welcome you to a special podcast on Britain and Europe. We've heard lots in recent weeks about David Cameron's attempts to renegotiate the terms of British membership and to change what it means for Britain to be inside the European Union. But what we know much less about is what will happen to the country if people decide to vote to leave the EU. What is the meaning of out? No member state has ever left the European Union and there are many more Eurosceptical arguments about what's wrong with the status quo than there are descriptions of what the plan for a Britain outside of the European Union will be. So in order to try and shed some light on the issue, we invited three prominent Eurosceptics to tell us each in five minutes what being out means for them, and then asked them some specific questions about the different models of non-membership which other countries have adopted. So today's podcast is going to be slightly different from the normal format of The World in 30 Minutes. And we're going to load up edited highlights of some of these descriptions by these three leading Eurosceptics of what role Britain will play outside of the European Union. And we're also going to put up a full recording of the whole event for those who want to go even further. So the three speakers in the order in which they appear are Bernard Jenkin, who's the Conservative MP for Harwich and North Essex and one of the most active Eurosceptics on the government benches. Mark Reckless, a former Conservative MP who defected to UKIP and won a famous by-election in Rochester only to lose his seat in the general election. He's now Director of Policy for the UK Independence Party. And finally, Matthew Elliott, who's the Chief Executive of Business for Britain, which is a Eurosceptic campaign group that was set up to represent businesses that are hostile to British membership of the European Union. He's a seasoned campaigner who has also run the campaign against the proportional representation in the UK when we had a referendum on that, and was also the founder of the Taxpayers Alliance, which is a a lobby group in Britain. I'm going to ask Bernard Jenkins to go first. He's the MP for Harwich and North Essex. Thank you very much indeed. Um, The first thing I would say is that your question is a perfectly fair one, though those of us who um, are working together, and it would include the three of us on this table, for the possibility of a no campaign, um, we've given this uh, actually... great deal of thought and in fact um, I'm sure um, uh, Matthew will um, expand on that Um, but um, um, it's not the job of the no campaign to um, define a solution to the result of the referendum that the government didn't choose Um, the no campaign will not be holding a manifesto for a plan of action Uh, the no campaign is not standing for election it's not going to be holding office after the referendum. Uh, what, what a no vote would do instantly is, first of all, um, legally it does nothing at all. It's only an advisory referendum. Uh, it, it puts the ball back in the government's court or the governing party's court or parliament's court um, uh, to decide how to respond to a no vote. It depends the circumstances of the no vote at the time, what, what the political feeling is around that no vote, if it's decisive 
or, or whether it's very marginal. All these things will, will change the context of what a, a no vote is deemed to mean. For example, before the referendum uh, in Greece, um, which now seems quite a long time ago but is in fact very recent, um, a week is a, a very, very long time in Greek politics, um, uh, a no vote in Greece was, was deemed to... Uh, people from great high office uh, told the Greeks that if they voted no to the package, they were going to be out of the euro. But as soon as there was a no vote, um, then the circumstances changed and um, everybody started negotiating and talking again. And without a further referendum, the Greeks have decided to stay in the euro and the European Commission and all the member states in the eurozone have decided to keep Greece in the euro. So um, it's very difficult to establish what the circumstances of a, of a no vote might be. Having said that, if the British government decided uh, that uh, a no vote meant that the British people wanted to effectively to disapply the application of the European treaties, to withdraw from the treaties, first of all, um, there is no leaving Europe. Uh, we're, a, um, we're part of the European continent um, and uh, we want nobody, without com nobody with any common sense either in Europe or in the United Kingdom would want us to have bad relations with our European partners or to restrict <coughs> trade in any way with our European partners or, or clamp down on, on bilateral or multilateral cooperation with our European partners and I'm sure that uh, whatever happened common sense would prevail in any process of withdrawal and then in terms of the process um, you mentioned Article 50 um, Article 50 is just one of the options in front of a, of a government, of a British government, whether to... I mean, it's important to point out the no, the no vote would not trigger Article 50, as some have said. Uh, the no vote would um, allow the government to decide... First of all, I imagine the British government would go into um, quite extensive discussions with the other 27 <coughs> member states and um, about what kind of agreement might be made with the United Kingdom after uh, we have uh, rescinded our membership of the treaties and those discussions may well extend to the substantive discussion about what that um, agreement might be and indeed might even those, those discussions might even conclude an agreement after a period of time about how the process of withdrawal should, should continue and um, uh, under the treaties uh, themselves the European Union itself is bound to have a good neighbourly policy with a, with a departing member state. It's bound by its own treaties to have an agreement with a departing member state. And that agreement is, should be based on the principles, one of the founding principles of the, uh, of the European Union, on, on free and fair trade. So it seems extremely unlikely that, uh, that some of these scenarios about, that are being offered to us, that there will be some kind of trade war or there will be tariff barriers <coughs> set up. I mean, these, these are all theoretical possibilities but actually nobody in their right mind would want them least of all uh, countries like Germany that export so much to the United Kingdom um, far more than we export to them so they've got far more jobs dependent upon their exports to our economy than we have on exports to their economy so I mean, uh, mutual interest would, it would, would dictate that um, a, a sensible arrangement would be reached were we to go down the article 50 route and I personally <laughs> don't think we should we would find ourselves bound into a, a, a number of procedures that put us at a disadvantage, that we can be shut out of the room at 28 um, in, in certain discussions, that votes will be taken about 
the terms of our withdrawal by qualified majority voting. It gives the uh, European Parliament a, a constitutional veto over the terms of, uh, terms of our, our, our withdrawal. None of these things would be to our advantage, so I don't think Article 50 uh, represents an attractive prospect. And we could always, it was always legal to leave the European Union before an Article 50 type arrangement exists. Nobody disputed that fact before Article 50 existed. And uh, it, seems, it would seem odd if the British people have just voted to um, 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 absolve themselves of all these obligations in the <coughs> treaties, which is then submit to a process under Article 50 that incidentally sets a two-year deadline uh, which can only be relaxed by unanimity amongst the 27 of the other <coughs> member states. That would seem to be an unwise thing for a British government to do. But in the, in the last analysis, were the European Union not to negotiate in good faith, we could unilaterally disapply the treaties. We're in a unique constitutional position in this country. We don't have any um, constitutional process to go, go through uh, to give effect to the referendum result uh, if, uh, if we had to. And we could pass simply an Act of Parliament uh, uh, suspending the application of the, the treaty provisions and all the legislation therein on, the, on, on our own law and thereby effectively leave the European Union in one step. I don't, I don't suggest that that would be a constructive way for a British government to approach exit from the European Union, uh, but it is a fallback position and something that our European partners would have to bear in mind. Thank you very much, Bernard. Um, uh, Mark, do you want to go next? Mark Reckless is the Director of Policy of UKIP. Good afternoon. Our, our title today is Brexit, What Would Out Mean? And uh, it was put to me, I think, in, in the invitation, what is our, our vision of life outside the European Union? So I propose to, to concentrate rather more on that, that future state rather than the, the procedural issues, which are, are very, very important, which uh, Bernard has uh, addressed. Firstly, I'd say that for... For us in UKIP, and Bernard, Bernard could say the no campaign was not standing for election, of course uh, UKIP is standing for election, but we want to be a constructive part and support for the no campaign. We don't wish to, to dominate it, and we want to work with Bernard and Matthew, I hope, and many, many others, uh, including more on the left of British politics, for making the, the case for British independence. And for us, it's not primarily uh, an issue of trade or an issue of money, but an issue of democracy, that uh, people should be allowed to elect those who govern them, and the decisions should be made by those who are elected and accountable to the voters, rather than made at several removes few, through people who are not elected within the European treaties, the EU Commission, having that... Uh, monopoly on the instigation of legislation, which is simply unacceptable within our understanding of what a democracy should be. I also believe that coming free of the European Union would rejuvenate not just the private sector, but perhaps especially the institutions of governance across the UK. There is, to my mind, a, a malaise in how this country governs it itself, right down from Downing Street to the local council chamber that the first reaction of politicians is not to think uh, how do we solve this problem for our constituents, what is our, our vision of a, a better future for our, 
our town, our, our county, our, our country, but is reference to a rules-based framework where others have determined the regulatory framework within which action is allowable and where politicians are frustrated through years of experience of the extent to which that constrains their ability to answer questions posed to them by those who elect them to public office. On trade, we wish to be a sort of open, outward-looking country. For me and for, for, for UKIP, our, our main concern is, uh, at least as much as the situation within Europe, is this idea that we should put tariff barriers against trade to people outside the European Union. That sort of every, every time a woman in Britain buys a bra, she has to pay a 50 pence or a pound or whatever it is to the European Union in respect of an external tariff to protect a few inefficient producers in Southern Europe when we barely make bras in this country and they're all almost entirely imported from China. Why should people have to make pay a tax just because they choose to buy something from outside the European Union rather than inside the European Union. We believe that is discriminatory and we would like to trade freely with countries across the whole world and particularly those great emerging markets, notably in Asia, but also with the United States. And we would like to do so on a basis of not a single regulatory regime that should be determined behind closed doors and ban anyone from selling anything unless it corresponds with a precise standard that's determined in advance by the civil servants <coughs> largely interacting with lobbyists. Instead, we would prefer a system of strong mutual recognition, the Cassie de Dijon principle, which to our great disappointment has been to such a degree replaced by a single regulatory top-down regime rather than mutual recognition of competing standards. Mm -hmm. We would like to apply that outside the European Union, particularly in relations with uh, large industrialised countries with a similar regime to ours, be that in the Canada or the United States or uh, I in Asia. And we want to do that in order to improve competition and the efficiency with which the British economy operates. We simply cannot carry on as we are with a current account deficit of 6% of GDP, higher than we've ever had in our history, higher, I believe, than almost any other industrialised country in the world. And that is within a system where we have free trade within Europe, but barriers and uh, dragging of feet in terms of negotiating decent free trade deals outside. We want to tear those barriers down, have a fair, non-discriminatory system, and we also connect the issue of the budget and contributions to that of trade because a key reason we have a current deficit of 6% of GDP, people are complaining that overseas people are coming in and buying up sort of properties in London or the crown jewels of British companies, it is simply the symptom of the fact we export 6% less in terms of credits than we import and we can only make up the difference by selling assets to people overseas or borrowing more money. What UKIP would like to do is set our economy on a better, more sustainable course, cutting out those transfer payments to the European Union, significantly cutting back on the overseas aid, but also opening our economy to the areas of the world where traditionally we've had a surplus, rather than simply opening to the area where we've had a deficit within the European Union. That is part of our vision for the UK as an independent country, trading with Europe, but governing ourselves. Thank you very much. Exactly five minutes. That's wonderful. So our third speaker is Matthew Elliott, who's the Chief Executive of uh, Business for Britain, but also, I think, one of the authors of uh, this enormous tome. Um, can you give us your five minutes of your vision? For 
Thank you, Rob. Of Europe. I thought I'd use my first minute just to introduce <laughs> the business of Britain and then perhaps use uh, my remaining four minutes on Change or Go. So in terms of um, what Business of Britain is, we set up um, just over two years ago um, after the Prime Minister's Bloomberg speech. Uh, you may remember that when he made his speech, um, several representatives of the business community claimed to speak for the whole business community, tried to make out that people were against, uh, businesses were against having a renegotiation and a referendum. And from my work with um, uh, business people in the UK, I knew very much that many business leaders were in favour of this process and we wanted to represent them um, at uh, sort of a national level. So we built up a group of a um, thousand plus uh, business people who share our point of view. Before the election, our big push was to make the business case for a referendum. We couldn't understand why many business groups were against having a referendum, even though they talked about being in favour of European reform. But for us, we believe that you need to have that referendum there as a backstop to show that we're serious as a country in wanting reform. Um, I remember back in the day when I was a young researcher working in the uh, European Parliament in the early 2000s when we heard a lot about the, uh, the Lisbon agenda and how the EU was going to be the most competitive um, uh, region in the world by 2015. I think it's safe to say that hasn't happened and one reason why these reforms haven't happened is because Britain hasn't been tough enough in its renegotiation stance um, since that point. So we're in favour of the referendum. Now we're very much pushing for renegotiation. Uh, we're very much against the idea of having um, you know, a few tweaks here or there. We're looking for the sort of fundamental change that we believe the Prime Minister outlined in his Bloomberg speech. He talked about um, bringing powers back uh, to the Member States. He talked about empowering national parliaments. He talked about making the EU much more competitive. He talked about having trade deals with many other countries across the rest of the world. If this sort of renegotiation happens, we will quite happily recommend to the British people that they uh, vote to stay in. But if uh, it doesn't happen, we're quite happy to say that uh, Britain will have a better future outside the EU. Just briefly in terms of the split <coughs> in the business community, this is worth looking at as well, because sometimes people assume that perhaps uh, the entire business community is more on the stay-in-at-all-cost side. And uh, if you just listen to some of the big businesses and the big banks and the big multinationals, uh, that's the impression you might get. And uh, I don't know who the representatives of Shell here are, but I could quite understand if you're Shell, for example, how you might think that we're a big multinational company. It's far easier if we just deal with the European Commission, which is slightly um, unaccountable, have our lobbyists there, deliver the regulations that we need. That's much more preferable for us than having Britain outside the EU. That's fair enough, I can understand that. But for many um, SMEs and many businesses in the UK who don't do any exports to the EU, which is basically 95% of British businesses, um, for them, you know, the EU has major costs and major impositions which they're unhappy with, which uh, they want to see changed. So briefly on change or go, I think Mark is right in saying that there was um, a lack of clarity on what would happen if Britain um, left an unreformed EU. One key point is that we assume, if you like, a worst case scenario. We assume uh, no deal has been done with the EU. And in a sense, this is the, uh, the best basis to work from. Uh, we don't think that would actually happen. We think of many, many reasons why there would actually be a deal with the EU, but we start from that sort of worst case scenario. 
And I think one of the key um, conclusions is in terms of how the sort of finances would work. And for those of you who have the document, perhaps you could look at the back page, the graph at the bottom left, where we look at the, uh, the current situation versus the Brexit situation. What you can see from that chart is that uh, were Britain to be outside the EU, all the people who currently get uh, money from the EU, be they farmers or universities or anybody else who gets sort of money from the EU, they could continue to get that money from the UK government. But the key finding of the report was this. There was always an assumption that there would be uh, billions and billions of pounds worth of tariffs were we to leave the um, EU. What we found in this study, for the first time ever, we went through all of the uh, different trade lines of the UK export, not only to the EU, but also to countries <coughs> which the EU has uh, free trade deals with. And we assumed the tariffs would go back to WTO levels. And what we found out from that process is it would actually add up to about 7.4 uh, billion pounds to cover the cost of those tariffs. And as we know, there are various ways in which governments can compensate countries uh, and help them with their trading within WTO rules. And you, know, you can see that with our um, net contribution to the, to the EU being well over 11 billion, we could quite easily accommodate those uh, potential extra tariffs, not that we think we'd have that. So I think the finance would work outside the EU. The other key point is people often assume that we'd be totally cut off from um, European institutions and you often hear from the pro-European side how things such as the uh, European health insurance card wouldn't apply were Britain to be outside the EU. Well actually there are many schemes like that scheme where there are many, plenty of non-EU member states, non-EU countries at the moment who take part in those schemes. Uh, similarly with um, Erasmus for example. Um, you know, non-EU countries take part in that. So many of the benefits, quotes, of being in the EU could be held outside the EU as well. And the final point I'd like to make is there are many international bodies which are now arguably more important than the European bodies where we'd actually have greater representation. I think it's disgraceful, for example, that with the WTO we are essentially indirectly represented by the EU rather than having our own voice there as the fifth largest economy in the world. Were it to be outside the EU, we can regain our own voice in you know, very important international forums like the WTO. I'll leave it there. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So that was the opening statements. After we listened to those statements, I asked each of the speakers whether we could look at some of the international precedents, because there are three countries which have all developed privileged relationships with the European Union, but have done it from the outside. The first example is Norway, which is a country which has joined the European Economic Area. They are bound by EU rules on free movement. They have tariff-free access to the European Union's single market for goods and services, although they're still subject to customs controls. They don't get automatic rights to join the global trade deals which the European Union signs. And they also have to apply all of the EU rules if they want to have access to the single market in that area and make a contribution to the EU budget, which is called voluntary, but amounts to almost 80% of what the British government does as part of its contribution. Switzerland uh, is the second model. It's not part of the EEA, the European Economic Area, but has a series of bilateral agreements with the European Union. Its agreement is very similar to the Norwegian one, but there are some differences. Switzerland is also bound by the principles of free movement, but there are some limited safeguards. They have 
access to tariff tree trade for goods but not services uh, so their financial services sector doesn't have a financial passport um, they also have the same uh, situation when it comes to EU regulations in the EU budget. And the third example is Turkey, which has a customs union with the European Union. It enjoys free movement only of, of goods um, and uh, also uh, has a strange situation when it comes to international trade deals with third parties. It's bound by whatever the EU negotiates in terms of access of those countries to its markets, but it has to negotiate separate bilateral arrangements for its own goods into those markets. But it doesn't have to be bound by the rest of EU law or free movement of, of, of labour. So I went to each of the speakers and I asked them to tell us what they thought was good and bad, unattractive or attractive about those models and what they thought Britain should do if it was negotiating the terms of membership for, uh, for Britain outside the EU. Uh, 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 the first point to make is that we would want um, a sui generis arrangement of our own with the European Union in an ideal world. Um, and, but as Matthew has pointed out, um, no agreement at all could well be preferable to the, to, to, the, to the renegotiated settlement that David Cameron might emerge with. And certainly no agreement at all would be preferable to the present arrangements that we have. <coughs> We're not allowed to talk about that because you don't want to talk about that. Okay. But I mean, Norway seems to me the least, um, the, the EEA option seems to me the least attractive. It's also actually problematic because it requires the consent of the, all the EEA states and all the EU member states in order to join the EEA. Um, so to, to, to set that as a precondition of leaving is rather closing your options. Um, the Switzerland option, um, uh, Switzerland, Switzerland is a sovereign state and independent of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice um, and the direct applicability and direct effect. They choose, I mean bear in mind the Swiss government's always wished it was in the European Union. They behave as much as possible as though they were in the European Union, though their people have never consented to them actually joining. Um, and I think their, their arrangements reflect that. Um, Turkey is interesting because Turkey has negotiated a, a customs union agreement for goods with the European Union, but it's not even a member of the European Union. I think that might be an interesting uh, transitional phase for the United Kingdom because it might take some time to um, create an orderly transition from being a member of a customs union and trading on the basis of the free movement of goods uh, to uh, trading according to the rules of free trade or international trade under the WTO rules, which is, of course, you have to trade uh, according to rules of origin. And um, 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 Norway, for example, has to apply quite a lot of rules of origin um, content rules to its production in order to qualify uh, under the EEA arrangement. So there's lots to learn from these models, but I don't think it's instructive to take any of these off the shelf. And um, finally, I would say, well, I'm talking that's mainly about goods. Um, obviously, one of the reasons the United Kingdom might leave the EU is so it can control free movement. Um, and, but uh, again, um, um, personally, I've always been in favour of immigration, and I think immigration is good for our economy, but... Um, uh, I think UKIP's right to say that uh, we have a very uneven immigration policy that's discriminatory against some states and not others and isn't very good at selecting the skills we need for our economy and we'd want to reach some reciprocal arrangements about that of our own and um, uh, on the question of trade in services um, 
Um, I mean, it's odd that we're talking about trying to set up a free market in services. I mean, we already trade, export far more services to the rest of the world than we do to the EU, as we do goods, incidentally. But, um, you know, in, in an age of the internet, when, in fact, services is already a tariff-free zone globally, I mean, it's odd that we're trying to create, you know, pass regulations to create a free movement in a free, free movement of services when we're already in a global service economy um, and I think that's one of the things that suggests the EU is still rather behind the times I just have one other thing though which is very instructive that the, the so called single market I mean that, whatever that means it's a term of art which to some people, to people means um, you know if you ask a, a German politician they'd say that, well the European Union is the single market and all the treaties are the single market and the whole thing is the single market um, on the other hand if you ask a businessman he would say the single market is his ability to sell goods into Europe um, and that's actually getting more difficult under the existing treaties I mean the British Chamber of Commerce no less is talking about how the single market is effectively being dismantled by more and more regulation which is driven by the comitology process and the vested interests of the big corporates and it's becoming more and more difficult for new entrants, innovation um, different kinds of product that don't reflect the regulatory regime and of course um, uh, that doesn't suit us at all um, and um, doesn't, it doesn't suit I mean the main, the main objective of getting out of the European Union if, if it becomes the objective is that we only need to apply the regulations to the goods that are actually sold into the market to qualify with EU regulations much as the Chinese sells cars uh, or, or the Japanese sells cars into the EU they have to comply, comply with, the, with the product regulations in the internal market but um, uh, we, at the moment we have to apply all that regulation to 100% of our economic activity even though 90% of it has got little to do with exporting goods to the European Union the rest of the European Union that seems to me an extremely bad deal uh, and one of the reasons why it might, might be much better to uh, forge a new relationship with our European partners from outside the jurisdiction of the treaties. Thank you very much, Bernard. Um, Mark, what's your... I, I, I will focus perhaps just on uh, two, two key issues, if I, if I may. Um, firstly, within the, within the, the, the UK, um, I wholly endorse what Bernard said, in that we don't want to adopt EU regulations which we need to apply to exporting to the EU but why on earth should we apply them to the almost 90% of our economy that isn't exporting to the EU and I think in that sense uh, our model is inevitably different than any that we are looking at here and in particular the, the size of the Swiss and the Norwegian uh, economies the particular sectoral focus of those uh, economies and their very, very, very deep level of um, export links with the with the EU. We would be we would be looking for, for something which gave us much greater freedom in terms of regulation and management of our own uh, economy. And yeah, in particular, I'm uh, attracted to the idea of you know, ge genuine deregulatory trade deals that potentially go beyond. Uh, uh, free trade only, but outside the European Union, where we do have that mutual standard recognition, which we were told was going to be the basis of the single market from Gatti de Dijon sort of on, but we now see in these sort of 
pathology and everything that happens behind closed doors. It is increasingly one regulation determined to protect the interests and profits of those who happen to dominate the market at a particular point in time and to increase barriers to entry to those who might compete away those profits and innovate in a way that might improve service to the consumer. We wholly reject that EU approach. Uh, secondly, and perhaps related with that, as well as freedom within our own domestic economy, uh, we want to have arrangements outside which take advantage of the attractiveness of the UK as a trading market. We don't want to be hamstrung by the protectionist in instincts of some countries in Europe that get in the way of signing a broad range of free trade agreements uh, outside the European Union. And uh, in particular, we want to use access to, to our market, including for food and agriculture, as something which is very attractive for a number of other economies around the world and we would want to use that as a lever to open those markets to our tradable services and particularly financial services in a way that the European Union does not give the priority to that we would wish. If David Cameron comes back with a deal um, that reflects the Bloomberg speech which in which he stressed the importance of national parliaments that reflects some of the comments he's made like he wants British law to be made by British decided by British judges um, that he wants immigration policy side in London, not in Brussels, uh, that he wants a, ba a relationship based on trade and cooperation, not centralization and uh, integration, um, uh, and so on. Um, I mean, the test of that is whether uh, we resolve this question of the Eurozone ins and outs. Yeah. And, you know, with the five presidents' report, with President Hollande's comments this morning, it's quite clear that the European Union was always designed, I mean the Maastricht Treaty was designed on the principle that everybody would eventually join the single currency and only adjusted later to try and accommodate the fact that some of us might remain what they call pre-ins for some period. But I mean the idea that we're, going to we're not going to be in monetary union ever, we're not going to be in political union ever, that's got to be addressed in the treaties. And the only way of addressing that is is for there to be an agreement between the Eurozone states and the non-Eurozone states. And at the moment, the, the Eurozone states are not even defined in treaty terms as Eurozone states. Um, and, uh, I mean, they operate, the, the, all these ad hoc arrangements, of the, Euro, you know, the, the, the Eurozone, the Euro Council and the Euro Presidents, these are all informal arrangements, they're not treaty arrangements. Um, now, if these were all to be formalised, the question is, who would adjudicate the agreement between the Eurozone states, who are the majority, and the non-Eurozone states. Well, obviously it can't be the institutions of the European Union, because the record of the European Court of Justice, and the record of the European Parliament, and the record of the Commission, is to, in the end, expect everybody to conform with the process of integration. Whether, whatever state, you know, we've seen our opt-outs, for example, the opt-out from the social chapter we thought we'd negotiated in the Maastricht Treaty had effectively been overturned by the European Court of Justice before the Labour Party got rid of it. The opt-out we thought we had from the Charter of Fundamental Rights, uh, which we were told was not going to have the significance of the Beano by Tony Blair, uh, we're now told applies to the uh, interpretation of all EU law legal decisions in the, in the, Euro in the United Kingdom. So these, the, the record of opt-outs is that they, you can't protect them. It's the National Parliament that's got to be able to protect them. So the bottom line is um, that the United Kingdom Parliament must be able to recover an, a working veto over the application of European community law in our own country. Which you and it's on, on to a much more bilateral, cooperative basis than the present. Now, people say, well, that, 
the European Union will never give you that. Well, then we'll have to li- have to leave the treaties. But which, would that. you all agree with that as the oh, kind of ultimate goal? Yeah. yeah. So is that the most important? Just because part of the thing I'm trying, trying to understand is the hierarchy of importance. Because some people say it's getting control of our borders. Some people say it's having access to, to free trade. Other people say it is about democracy and, and kind of sovereignty. Well, just well, actually, parliamentary sovereignty is about all those things. Okay. And um, uh, it's about so that's the being able to control things like determine that our relationships with our European partners mm. on borders. It's about like being able to, 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 protect the, to protect the city of London from European regulation, protect the city of London from the effects of a financial transactions tax if that was ever brought in. Mm. Because by being inside the jurisdiction, the unlimited jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, we would not be able to determine these things so that the British Parliament must have that veto restored. It's about, about restoring our democracy and we believe that the, the UK would be better off outside the European Union and you know, a relationship like Canada or South Korea's negotiated in terms of free trade would be far preferable to what we have now but you know, if, if, if necessary we would still be better off as Matthew has showed, ably showed on the financial side outside the European Union uh, with WTO rules but we believe we could do better than that but our view that we were better off out isn't reliant on doing better than that. So that brings the discussion to an end. As you can see the outers are still being slightly cagey about the exact meaning of out but I suspect that in the months ahead they're going to get pressed on many of those details on what out means for trade, what it means for migration, what it means for other aspects of Europe's relationship with the European Union and that there will be a clear choice between a renegotiated membership of the European Union and a particular model for out. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion. From Bernard Jenkin, Mark Reckless, Matthew Elliott and myself, it's thank you for now. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katerina Botel, and you can see links to all the things that we mentioned on Britain in Europe and to a full recording of the discussion at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts.